This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, an extension of the Pitch KC. I am the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur, and also the host of this little show. How is everybody doing this week? Me? Not so well. Uh, last week I was telling you how excited I was to be at a Foo Fighters concert and to see Radke. Um, and managed to, at that show, incredibly mess up a foot. I uh, don't know if it was glass or the heat or, uh, you know, just something terrible happened and I have spent most of this week... Uh, sort of off my feet, um, and it has yielded a very interesting, uh, positive spin in some ways, which is just that, um, you know, sometimes you should be swept off your feet, uh, preferably not by a medical issue, uh, but sometimes, uh, just kicking your feet up, putting them on, uh, on the couch and not going anywhere for a couple of days does wonders for you. Uh, obviously... Everyone still has to do some things like grocery store and uh, walk into the restroom and so on and so forth. Uh, but otherwise, just kicking the feet up. Pretty okay time. Uh, it feels weird to be offering the advice of like, maybe what you should do after a year and a half of pandemic is uh, not go anywhere or do anything. Yep. Uh, it turns out you can do a lot less. I did a lot of pacing in that time. I didn't spend a lot of time off of my feet, uh, just sort of being maddeningly weird around the house uh so to uh kick off my shoes and relax my socks pretty okay time uh streetwise podcast today we have a wonderful time we have an interview coming up uh with the drummer from newfound glory uh we have nick's music corner as always but first of all here uh our friend jason from stolen dress entertainment is back after a cross-country move Glad that he's all safe and set up and has his computer working again. He's doing a reading of a story by our own Barb Shelley uh, about the bicentennial of Missouri. It is our 200th birthday, and uh, we've always been uh, kind of wackadoos, and uh, we continue to lean into that. So here is a story about uh, the people from Missouri in 2021 and uh, how we got here over a course of two centuries. Jason, take it away. Welcome to the Show Me Hate. At 200 years old, Missouri continues to embrace its extremist personality. By Barb Shelley. On January 6, 2021, as Missouri's bicentennial year was just getting started, Josh Hawley thrust the state into the spotlight with a fist pump. We all remember that afternoon. A conspiracy-fueled crowd gathered outside of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., convinced of Donald Trump's bogus claim that the presidential election of a couple of months earlier had been stolen from him. Hawley, Missouri's junior senator, drew a cheer as he walked by on his way to work. A few days earlier, he had announced he would challenge the certification of legitimate electoral college results that awarded the presidency to Joe Biden. Trump's followers, with their QAnon symbols, Confederate flags, and Nazi symbols, saluted Hawley for that. Hawley saluted them back with that raised fist, a news photographer captured the moment, and within an hour, the image was everywhere. In the days following the Capitol insurrection, I received a lot of messages from people who live in other places. The common thread was, what is wrong with your senator? It was as though people couldn't understand how a state famed as the birthplace of plain-spoken Harry Truman and very recently represented by Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill 
suddenly birthed this frightening aberration. But Missouri has always served as a cradle for right-wing extremism. Missouri is a state where a bust of Rush Limbaugh occupies a place of honor in the state capitol. It is the base from which Phyllis Schlafly mobilized brigades of conservative women in the 1970s to slam the brakes on passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. It is the home of Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who became instant right-wing celebrities last year for brandishing firearms at Black Lives Matter protesters who were marching past the McCloskey's St. Louis home. It's unfair, of course, to define a state by its outliers. Mark Twain, Maya Angelou, and Walter Cronkite also heralded from Missouri, to name just a few. But, two centuries after its founding, Missouri is increasingly embracing its reactionary personality. Every day the headlines serve up some new outrage. A new law claims to invalidate federal gun legislation. The governor frets about an imaginary scenario in which federal agents knock on people's doors and browbeat them into getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Having all but paused abortions in the state, some lawmakers are now crusading against birth control. McCaskill, who was senator for 12 years before losing to Hawley in 2018, says she saw the craziness coming in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. I had a front-row seat, watching what was happening in our state, McCaskill says. The culture wars, along with tapping the vein of grievance, is such a powerful combination outside of the urban areas. No one knows better how to monopolize grievances than Trump. He won Missouri by a 19-point margin in 2016 and stands as the titan of its Republican Party today. Trump masterfully knew how to market himself as someone who got their angst, got their grievances, says McCaskill. Screw all the politicians, screw Washington. I'm the one who's going to be your savior, and by gosh, in rural Missouri, that's what he was to people. But Missouri, once known as the nation's bellwether, has been an aggrieved, alienated kind of place almost from its birth in August of 1821. In the years leading up to and during the Civil War, it harbored pro-slavery guerrilla fighters who resisted Union occupation and battled with anti-slavery fighters in Kansas. Union commanders retaliated by forcibly displacing fighters and their families and confiscating their property. They wouldn't just come to arrest them and take them to jail, says Don Hader Markell, a political science professor at the University of Kansas who studies extremism. They would burn their house down so their family had no place to live. And that's what helped radicalize the right. It really dates back that far. A deep distrust of the federal government slices through Missouri's history. In the 1950s, racist, anti-communist preachers with Missouri ties, like Bill Beeney and Billy James Hargis, beamed incendiary propaganda over the airwaves, alleging communist infiltration of universities, civil rights groups, and the federal government. Basically, they were saying not only that the Soviet Union is going to infiltrate the U.S., but that they're infiltrating the U.S. government, Hader Markel says. And we can no longer trust our government, our democracy, to do the right thing, and we're going to have to take things into our own hands. That message, carried to its extreme, has manifested in a long record of militia, cult, and hate group activities. In the 1960s, Robert Depew, a pet vitamin entrepreneur from Norborn, Missouri, channeled his hatred of communists and government into the violent survivalist movement remembered as the Minutemen. Don Gaiman, a pastor who espoused a theory that Jewish people descended from a union between Adam and Satan, established his base in Shell City, Missouri in the 1970s. He became an inspiration for the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, a sprawling white supremacist cult based in Arkansas and Missouri through the mid-1980s. Seven years ago, a dissipated former Ku Klux Klan leader, Fraser Glenn Miller, crawled out of a small town in southwest Missouri, drove to Overland Park, Kansas, and fatally shot three people whom he wrongly assumed were Jewish people. The far right generally agrees on one thing. We hate the federal government, says Hader Markel. The reasons why they hate the federal government are different depending on the strain of far-right extremism, but they all hate the federal government. 
Reflexive abhorrence of the federal government drives a lot of the insanity we see in Missouri today, like the attempted nullification of federal gun laws. That runs deep in Missouri, says McCaskill. This idea that the government can't tell me what to do, that I have the right to my gun and I have the right to shoot people on my property, and I have the right to tell the government to go pound sand, those are the green shoots of extremism. For a glimpse of extremism in full bloom, look no further than the race for the U.S. Senate seat that longtime Republican officeholder Roy Blunt is vacating after this year. One of the announced candidates is former Governor Eric Greitens, who got elected in 2016 partly by running TV ads showing himself in military gear blowing things up, then blew himself up with a sex scandal and campaign finance irregularities. Another is State Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who spends most of his time and tons of taxpayer money launching quixotic lawsuits against the Biden administration and the federal government. A third contender is the aforementioned Mark McCloskey, because nothing defines leader in the 200th year of Missouri statehood like a belligerent, camera-loving lawyer who defended his property from the threat of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. And Senator Hawley? He whined about his book deal being canceled by a major publisher after his role in the Capitol insurrection. Some of his benefactors deserted him and expressed remorse for their role in his meteoric rise to national office. But Hawley is unlikely to pay much of a political price for his salute to the faces of insurrection because, in ways that matter, he is a true son of Missouri. He exemplifies its defiance and its corroded populism. He understands that extremism can reap political rewards. Missouri in 2021 is reeling from one of the nation's highest COVID-19 infection rates, unceasing gun violence, decreasing life expectancy, and a stagnated economy. Its legislature and governor have denied health insurance to low-income workers, even though voters called for them to expand Medicaid eligibility. But we have our guns and our glory, and we are keeping the federal government at bay. Happy 200th birthday, Missouri. Bring on the fireworks. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Nicholas. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Every time I see that Season to Risk is playing a show, I'm filled with excitement. The long-running Kansas City post-hardcore band has crafted numerous pummeling, exciting songs over the course of their 30-year career. And albums like Men Are Monkeys, Robots Win, and In a Perfect World are hidden gems which haven't gotten the band the national acclaim they deserve, despite the band getting a brief appearance in Catherine Bigelow's 1994 sci-fi film Strange Days. However, it's as a live act that Season to Risk thrives, and there's no studio song which comes as close to capturing that ripping energy as Last Breath Aboard from 2001's The Shattering. The song is a frantic realization of everything going wrong and absolutely menacing until it hits its breakdown, which then goes into the chanted cry of S.O.S., which concludes the song. It's one of those tracks which should have been a hit, but alas, only in my mind. You can snag Season to Risk's The Shattering and Men Are Monkeys Robots Win digitally and on vinyl at seasontorisk.bandcamp.com, and the band opens for The Descendants and The Menzingers at Liberty Hall in Lawrence on August 26th. Here's Last Breath Aboard. Yeah. 
Thank you, Nick. Uh, anyway, coming up here, we have an interview with Cyrus from Newfound Glory. He is the drummer. Uh, Newfound Glory uh, is coming through Kansas City at the Uptown Theater on September 22nd with opening act Simple Plan, uh, part of the Punk Pops Not Dead Yet tour. I will get to ask Cyrus when Punk Pop indeed dies uh, and, uh, and find out the answer to that and many of your other questions. Here is our interview. Hey, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. I'm Cyrus Baluki. I'm the drummer of Newfound Glory, and thank you very much for having me. How many years have you been in Newfound Glory? Gosh, uh, pretty much going on 25 years now. Um, little known fact, or maybe a, a well-known fact now that it's been 25 years, I am not the original drummer. So about 24 years and nine months ago, I joined the band about three months after they formed. So I will always be known as the new guy. <laughs> is is he in any way resentful of that? We don't have to answer that. <laughs> you know what? I, I can tell you really quickly, a, a funny story was, you know, 24 and a half years ago when I did play my first show at Newfound Glory, the original drummer, who I wasn't necessarily friends with, but, uh, you know, not bad blood or anything. I just didn't really know him. The original drummer actually came to my first performance and uh, he was front center. And we're setting up our gear. You know, this is like a bar. It's not like a big show or anything. And literally, you could just step onto the stage. And I'm setting up my gear, and he's front and center. And I'm just like, this kid is here to just beat the, you know, you know what out of me. And we started the first song. He started singing along. And it was almost as if, now I don't want to say he's like relieved, but I think he had so much fun being on the other side, singing the songs that he had been playing for months. Uh, it was very, very kind of surreal for me. Uh, so you guys are back out on tour right now on the uh, the Pop Punk Still Not Dead tour. When does Pop Punk die? Do you know the date of that? Is it coming up? <laughs> I'm going to tell you it'll never die because if COVID can't kill it, I don't know what can. Sorry for the bad joke right there, but. <laughs> I, it, it's all bad jokes now. We all live in a bleak hellscape. True, true. So you're coming through Kansas City uh, through the Uptown Theater on September 22nd. I'm actually catching you guys uh, twice in three days because I'll be seeing you at Riot Fest, which is... Uh, the the most of your concerts that I've seen in a decade, so it's fun to be back as a fan. Just really double doubling down on that. Um, you guys have booked a full tour like every night for the next two months. Uh, what is it like to be hitting the road that hard after two years off? <laughs> you know, I wish I could tell you what it was like because uh, you know it does feel kind of crazy. The problem is that this has never happened before. And much like everybody says, you know, very unprecedented times we're in right now. Uh, we've never really taken a break. So I couldn't tell you what it's like to have a tour that you booked literally almost two years ago, not be able to do it, have to postpone, 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 and then finally now be able to, to be out on the road. Um, it really is like a surreal feeling. And before we went out on the road for this tour, we were able to play a, a few shows, um, mainly live streams, like a lot of bands did, but there were a, a couple actual performances and, uh, those were insane because I think it's not just us, but also uh, audience members that have been longing for this. And so it's kind of like this pent up, you know, just excitement and, and, you know, all these emotions, uh, boiled up into one that everybody can let go at the concert. And so, Hopefully, for an hour and a half each night, we're able to, uh, for most, if not all people, to kind of make them forget about everything crazy that's going on around them. I, I, I realize that this is something that a lot of uh, big touring acts went through, and I, I just want to know what your number is on this. But, like, 
when the first shutdown started, how many times did you rebook and start planning for like, oh, three months down the road, we can start this again, or six months down the road, let's start like announcing sales for those tickets or? You know, I'll probably admit here something I shouldn't admit, which is I, I couldn't even tell you that number because it probably happened a few times before I even heard about it happening. Or, you know, I heard that we had rescheduled or were rescheduling and then there was an internal reschedule one more time. Or I know for a fact that kind of the first time we postponed this original tour, which would have been, I think, uh, May of 2020, the first time we postponed those dates, we did a fall tentative fall run and also at the same time went into the beginning of this year to try to see if we could do it and we also did an alternative let's just say you can only do small clubs and you know of course none of that ended up happening and now we're back to actually expanded dates from the original announcement that we did a few years back because of the 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 demand that we had um, but still, it's just crazy because again, all the stuff we'd never had to do before, you know, try to book a show and then also understand that it might be changed at any moment. It, you might not be able to play it. You might have to downsize capacities, things like that. Try to make it financially viable for everybody that's there. Deal with other people's schedules. And don't forget, we're one band out of thousands that are trying to do the same thing. So right. the, uh, like the demand for scheduling at clubs has never been greater right now. And so people were booking tours a year out, just basically, you know, putting their finger on a calendar and saying, let's go here because you can't book a tour three, four months in advance like you used to. It's got to be a year because it's totally booked for the next year. I have a coworker here at the paper who uh, uh, she and her boyfriend at the time went ahead and booked a wedding venue because they knew what was going to happen when this cleared up before they were engaged. And I was like, you're right. Like you, and they got one of the last dates available in 2022. Wow. So like, yeah, I, I understand that all venues are having that time. What was, what was the first moment that you had the real sinking feeling in your stomach in 2022 that was like, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, you know, I, I think personally for myself, um, a, a little backstory, my, my wife, uh, has a, a, like a condition that makes her immunocompromised, which everybody knows that word now. And, uh, you know, so she was kind of following along what was going on before this kind of became a national thing, which would have been, I guess, uh, early to mid February of, mm -hmm. of 2020. And, uh, ironically it was right around my birthday. I had a birthday at the end of, end of February and we traveled for that not far. We went to like Key West, like kind of a local staycation for, for where I live in South Florida. We actually ended that traveling early because we just started to feel a little uneasy about being somewhere outside of our home and not having control of all the people around us. And, uh, you know, that was a few weeks before everything really went down. Um, I, I pretty much knew right away that it was going to be something that wasn't going to be a week or two because every day the news was escalating. But of course, I don't think anybody could have predicted that it would have been a year plus and we're still dealing with it. And, uh, you know, it doesn't look like it's trending really in the right way, although eventually we have to get past this because as a civilization, we have done this for thousands of years, just not as widely publicized, I guess. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. What was it like to put out an album in 2020 and not be able to tour in support of it? Was there ever a conversation about like we should just hold off? Uh, or were you like, you know, the world needs music right now. It's ready to go. And, you know, we have no other income coming in from this. 
I, we had all those conversations and then some, um, you know, most people I think would understand that bands usually don't record a record and put it out the following day. So we tracked this record in the fall of 2019. And then we went on a little tour after that um, in November of 2019. And that was the last full tour we did before, before COVID hit. So when everything really started getting crazy in March at that time, we already had tickets on sale for this tour with simple plan. And like I said, the demand was insane. We had sold out, I think, over half of the shows. Um, I think we put those tickets on sale in like January or February of 2024, summer dates, and they were sold out six months in advance. So everything was just rolling so strong. And then it comes to a screeching halt. And what we ended up doing was the first conversation was, well, let's push it back. Because as everybody remembers, the initial kind of reaction for everybody was, uh, it'll be a couple of weeks and it'll get, it'll, it'll blow over, it'll go away, or it's not as big as it really, everybody thinks it is. And of course, everybody was wrong about that. I think once we realized that this was going to be a long-term thing, we shifted to, you know, do we really want to wait an unknown amount of time and possibly put out a record a year, two years from now, any of that stuff. And we kind of decided let's look into alternatives. And so the alternative for us was this live stream concept that a couple bands had started to do. And we quickly kind of found uh, just logistically a way that we could do it, but we wanted to make it special. So we coincided the release of the record, which we did delay for like two or three weeks, I think, to try to allow people to go into stores because all the stores are shut down, you know, in March and April. And um, it, it, it ended up opening up so that people could go in stores, but we coincided a live stream with it. And then we also wanted to take the live stream up a notch and the live stream we did to release this record or celebrate the release of this record ended up being our longest set we've ever played. We played 40 songs and we advertised that we were playing 40 songs to try to kind of give people their money's worth and make it a, you know, something you don't want to miss. And we'll never do that again. It was fun, but it, it wasn't easy. Uh, but that was the first of like a handful of live streams that we did last year that, again, a lot of bands did. And that's that's what most people's 2020 was. I uh, I, I know it wasn't that long between uh, gigs and not gigs, but I do know I, I saw a number of those bands on live streams be like, oh, we had to have practices for this because we were all out of touring shape to do this. That's going to be our only show for the year for you. Like, Agreed. Were, Agreed. were there rehearsals for this where you were like, I'm not sure we remember all 40 of these songs? Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like because we're not in touring mode because that was kind of a given. We knew that. It was literally, we're digging into this catalog and playing some songs we probably haven't played in years. And uh, to, to add on top of that, the fact we're doing 40 of them, um, including some new songs that we had never played live. Um, it was tough. I, I feel like uh, as I get older, you know, it's more accomplished for us. This was our 10th full length that we put out last year. Um, but also, you know, our brains are only so big. And so the memory bank, the capacity for the Newfound Glory catalog, I think has reached its peak. And you have to basically swap songs out now at this point in time. And uh, I would never be able to play all of our entire catalog on demand at this point. You kind of have to know what you're doing and prep for it. Yeah, whether it's the morning of a show and you're going to play it that night and you sound check it or, you know, for a live stream. Yeah. You do get together and rehearse a few times. And, you know, that was fun for us too. It, it was good to get together to see everybody, even though it was different circumstances and everybody had to wear their masks and stay away and do weird things like that. You know, we, we don't all live next to each other. So once the shutdown happened again, much like a lot of bands, you kind of lose, lose communication. We did a few, uh, you know, Zoom, Zoom calls between each other. We actually did like a, a game night that we uh, recorded for people to watch. You know, those are, we don't sit here and call each other every day because you take it for granted. Like you're going to go see everybody on tour in a couple of weeks anyways, right? 
And then uh, the shutdown happened. And it's like, wait a second, I, I might not have, if I think about it, talked to some of these guys for three or four weeks. So, um, you were you were talking about getting older and and uh, and having the size of catalog you have, which I I no longer judge any band that I see that's been around more than twenty years that has like the iPad on stage for like. I don't know. I can't remember all the lyrics if we're going to play the deep cuts. Like, I totally get it. Uh, I, I guess I want to ask you guys about about 25 years of your sound. Um, there, there's something that you've been able to do that I think very few bands from the genre and from the era have managed to do uh, as successfully. And that is that you have always given uh, your fans exactly what they want from a newfound glory song. Uh, but you're always evolving and maturing and like the the album that we're talking about you guys went out and grabbed a producer better known for working with like dillinger escape plan and like but it still sounds like a newfound glory album like what what is it like lyrically emotionally and sonically that has allowed you guys to keep growing in this way or does it just reflect where you are in your own lives <laughs> um i think we're very fortunate in that jordan our singer uh he's got a very unique voice and although you know throughout the years it might have slightly changed timbre um it's not it's still him and we've literally we've said it to ourselves you can kind of put any music behind jordan and it'll sound like newfound glory i mean we haven't necessarily experimented that much with let's say like dance tracks or something like that but i guarantee you it kind of would sound like us even if it was something like that so uh you know we, we have that advantage that having jordan on any track is going to make it sound like newfound glory but I think for this record, you know, you're mentioning uh, Steve Evitz. He's an amazing guy. He's a great producer. Um, yes, he's been known to record a lot of heavier bands, but he's also done some, some bands that we're familiar with or that we, uh, you know, kind of came up with. One of the bands that he worked with a bunch that we really appreciated and, and became friends with and everything was Saves the Day. And so uh, when we were first starting in the late 90s, uh, we kind of both came up together, both of our bands. And he produced a lot of their earlier records and we love those records. So I think it allowed for a great relationship between the two of us and a mutual understanding where Steve didn't need to get in the way in certain aspects. He kind of let us do our thing, but he just was there to elevate what we were doing. So whether it was for me, you know, suggest a drum fill or even things I've never thought of. Like I did like fills on cymbals, you know, and without getting too technical, that's something I really have never done in my 25 years. You know, or maybe it was a guitar tone, not an actual part, but just a tone. Let's use this amp because I used it on the Dillinger record or something. You know, those are the cool things. And that's one of the reasons why we sought him out, because here's a guy that we hadn't worked with before, although we kind of been like circling around the same genres for the longest time and the same circles. So it, it really came out to be a, a fun experience for all of us. I think something where, you know, it was relaxing and we were all able to do what we've been doing because we both had careers for that long. And, uh, you know, the, the, the end product is a record that we feel like definitely sounds like Newfound Glory, has a lot of this pop punk kind of sound that we're well known for. We didn't have any issues with letting the tempos get up there, playing faster songs, even having some songs that structure wise aren't as like pop as maybe we've done in the past or straightforward. Just like if you want to let a song go to a different part and just kind of stay there and end that way. Sure. There's no rules here. And those are the things that like a lot of producers might not want to do. They might steer you back towards that kind of formulaic arrangement that so many bands follow. And, and those are the those are the reasons why I think this record is a, it's a really good record for us. And live, we're finally now going to be able to play some of these tracks. It, it's going to be a lot of fun. It really is. 
Uh, finally, I wanted to ask about you guys are, are uh, doing a re-release of last year's album that now has mm -hmm. six new songs on it that were recorded during pandemic. How did uh, how did the the change in the world affect the, the material of what those songs are? How was the recording affected by that? Uh, so, uh, great question. We it's like a mixture. There's six songs on it, six new songs. Um, I think three of those were songs that in some form we either demoed for the original recording, which we did a lot of the demos um, earlier in 2019, like in the summer while we were on a tour in the back of the bus. So we had demoed some of these songs pretty much in full. And then a couple other ones, it was basically like listening to these, if you want to call B-sides, uh, uh, a few of the songs on this re-release, listening to them, uh, Chad, our guitar player, was like, you know what? I want to write some more riffs like this. And he did. And that's where a couple of the other tracks come out and come from. The recording thing was a little interesting. This is one of the first times I recorded drum tracks for some of those songs. I couldn't even tell you when. It was one of the times we did a live stream. Uh, every live stream we did last year was in Nashville uh, because our band is basically our hub now is Nashville. It's central to us. Chad lives near Nashville. Uh, Ian, our bass player, myself live in Florida and Jordan, our singers in Southern California. So it's kind of a central spot and we go there a lot. That's where our gear is, where we rehearse. And there happened to be a live stream studio that we could use right there. So every time we would come to Nashville, it's like, well, what else can we do since we're here? And it's not easy to get us here because of the pandemic. And so I recorded my drum tracks in one of these like live stream weekends, if you want to call it, for a couple of these songs. And then we sat on them for a few months, knowing we would finish them later, but not knowing exactly when. And we ended up actually finishing uh, the recording of, of these songs when we did uh, an acoustic live stream that we did a few months back. We did an unplugged and recorded a live stream and literally the next day entered the same studio where I did my drums and finished the rest of the record. It's fun for me because I didn't have any. All I did was go in the studio, um, go in the studio and, and just hang out and help with the rest of the songs. There's no pressure. You got to finish your drums and all that. So. Yeah, interesting recording, uh, you know, schedule as well. But the result is still, I think all these songs, they definitely sound like they could have been on this record. And again, ironically, three of them were going to be on this record. And we just had other songs that won out at first. Well, hopefully not a recording experience you'll ever have to recreate. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Look forward to seeing you September 22nd at the Uptown in Kansas City with Simple Plan. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great one. All right. You too. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Streetwise podcast from the pitch in Kansas City. I'm Brock Wilbur. It's been fun having you here today. Uh, please check out everything that we're doing at thepitchkc.com each and every day, bringing you news and local journalism that we hope you really enjoy. Uh, our membership drive is on now as it is each and every single day, all of the time. We are looking for you and people that care about what we are doing to help us keep the lights on. A couple of bucks a month would really help. If you just have a couple of bucks now and want to toss it our way, that would be wonderful too. Um, please stay in touch. Please let us know what you'd like us to be covering. Brock at thepitchkc.com. Write to me with questions or ideas or things that are just bugging you. If they're bugging you, they might be bugging me, or when I learn about them, they will probably bug me too. Uh, and I would love to get to the source of anything bugging you. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Take care of each other out there. Pitch in, and we will make it through. Bye, 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 bye.
This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.